The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. On today's show, we're talking about the BC Emergency Response Benefit announced last week. It's available to people earning under $125,000 a year. But not only has the website been crashing from the huge amount of demand for this $500 benefit, but it's also been plagued by concerns that about people being asked for even further documentation, including printouts or scans of government-issued identification, tax records, and bank account information. For those who are learning the lowest income, many have complained that the process has become too complicated, too onerous, and inaccessible for people who don't have printers, scanners, or filing cabinets with all of their records available, and that the process should just be simplified to join on to social assistance or disability rates. We talked to the First United Church's Executive Director, Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, about this issue as well as what the church's plans are over the holidays and New Year, and some big plans for the building itself. Carmen, welcome to The Pulse on Vancouver Cooperative Radio. Thanks, David. Love, lovely to be here. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. I'm um, looking forward to a quiet Christmas with my family. Uh, we're not going up to see my parents, of course, because we're following the provincial health order, but um, we're excited. It's snowing in Lynn Valley this morning, so my kids are going a little bit crazy um, and ready to get out there in their snowsuits. I know that for a lot of the folks that you work with at First United, there must be a particularly difficult season, I think, for a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, I think for sure I have noticed um, just when I'm driving into work or uh, walking in the neighborhood, um, it's so visible how weary people are being on the street. And I think, you know, we've we've had to keep our drop-in closed over the past eight months because it um, is co-located with our shelter and there was no way to safely uh, operate the drop-in and the shelter at the same time. And so um, I know many, many other drop-ins are closed or have very, very limited access. And so, you know, if you just think about being actually out on the street with nowhere comfortable to sit for uh, months and months and months, it's really wearing on people. And of course, now with the winter starting today, it's... um, it's a little bit unconscionable that we still have so many street homeless in Vancouver. Yeah. And and I know that first is such like a living room type space. You really try to make people feel like they can just come in and sit around at the tables. It's usually bustling before the pandemic of all day long. Yeah. And, and day sleeping, like, as you know, sleeping overnight, if you're sleeping rough, um, you often are not sleeping when you're outside at night because it's not safe. And so um, our, our inability to offer a safe place for day sleeping is, is really challenging for the community as well. Hmm. What looking back on this last rather stressful and, and upsetting year, is there anything that shone through for you in terms of the community and in terms of the, the people that you're working with and the, the staff? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're on the front I would lines. say the hard, <laughs> yeah, the hard thing. Um, and we had to even battle it internally a little bit, but it was just the, um, the increased stigma, right? It's so natural for middle-class society to assume that people who are dirty and street homeless are vectors for disease and, um, to sort of counter that narrative and say, no, we're trying to protect the community from, 
um, who we know were the primary vectors for the disease, which was people of means and, and specifically people who had the means to travel internationally were the primary um, vectors for carrying the virus in the first place. And um, I think because of the early shutdown of the province, um, that really did preserve the community for a long time. And um, we didn't start to see um, outbreaks and community transmissions in the downtown east side until late summer. And um, so, you know, on the one hand, we were really blessed that it was, it was delayed entering, um, entering the community until the start of the second wave. On the other hand, um, it really just reinforced people's negative stereotypes about the community in ways that were, I, I think, set us back a lot, actually. Hmm. Tell me about and, how, they, how um, you see that setting you back. Um, well, I, I don't think it. I don't think it actually makes a difference necessarily for the community, but I think that um, it just, um, when it comes to the wider society, it reinforced their negative stereotypes about what it means to um, be experiencing homelessness or housing precariousness or addiction or mental health or whatever, um, whatever people's prejudices are um, that they got exacerbated by. Um, by the pandemic. And mm. um, that's really unfortunate. I think there's also, um, and this is germane to the point of why we're talking today, um, you know, not every, not every citizen or um, taxpayer or uh, resident of the city is treated equally. And so um, watching processes that were developed for um, the majority of people and seeing the ways that um, people who are already facing significant barriers to a full and thriving life were left for uh, last consideration, whether it was in determining the public health rules or the way that um, CERB or the RTB or uh, this new recovery benefit are set up were really to benefit um, the majority of Canadians and didn't center the experience of people who don't have access to the internet or a phone regularly or things like that. Well, so. yeah, this, I, I'm getting a lot of messages from folks trying to access this BC emergency benefit. And this is in yeah. the wake of them cutting in half the additional benefit for people on disability assistance uh, to 150 just last month. So I tried to apply for it just now to prepare for this interview got through, but you have to have done your taxes last year, which I think is a barrier. Uh, and then once you're through, yeah. what happens then? It seems like there's a lot more that's required. Yeah. So once you're through the way that it, I mean, the way that it is explained on the website is not particularly user-friendly. Um, I think they tried to answer as many questions as possible at the outset, but the, um, result is it's almost fine. It's almost hard to find the link to the actual application. Um, you have to have uh, line 236 uh, for your net income from your last tax return. And then you have to have your social insurance number, your driver's license or BCID number, and your bank transit number. So it assumes that you have a bank account, um, which you may or may not do. And there is, um, I think it was, you know, designed again for the majority of people. Um, people I don't with think a filing cabinet with all their paperwork handy. Yeah, I don't even or, have that. And also, you know, for people who for people who are already on income assistance who would qualify, there's no need to go and reapply again. Like the the province could have just added 
the $500 to their checks or the $1,000 to their checks. Um, so that was the first barrier. You mean the assistance checks? Yeah, absolutely. So it created an additional barrier even by requiring that people have to submit an application if we already know that their income is verified, that all of their, you know, the province already has their banking information. Um, that that created the first barrier. I think the second thing um, is just the... I think the government did themselves a disservice by trying to act like they could get it out as quickly as CERB originally was rolled out. They promised it before um, Christmas. That was the election promise. And people are really yeah. hurting before Christmas right now for money. Yeah, absolutely. So they promised it before Christmas. They promised that it was going to be integrated with systems that were already there. And then, um, so I actually was able to apply um, for the benefit. And 48 hours later, I got a message with an additional laundry list of documents that I have to submit um, in order to verify my application. And it says on the follow-up email that I would have to wait up to um, 30 days for those documents to be processed. Um, so there's no way, like I'm thinking probably feb- by February. And you need a printer or a scanner to be able to do this. And I, it just strikes me that I'm going to have to go to my mother's, who is the only printer or scanner in my entire network of friends. And most people don't have that. The services like the libraries have shut for all that kind of activity or are too dangerous to go to for some people. And on top of that, the identification required is more stringent than to vote. You actually need to have a driver's license or BCID. You can't have someone vouch for you. I mean, it's easier to vote, actually. It's really quite a burden, I think. The... um it does say on the website that if you don't have access to a computer, that you can um, go to a service BC center, but the service BC center is not um, the service. It says right on the website, but you can't go to service BC if you're in Vancouver, Burnaby or Surrey. So, um, and that with no alternative um, options. And this makes me quite sad. And I'm just thinking how many, much people need that $500 more than somebody who's of means like for me it's much less impact on my income even though i qualify for that than for someone who's literally scrounging by paycheck to paycheck or worse yeah absolutely i mean the um you know i i've been thinking about this a lot coming up to christmas and you know getting ready to be on vacation this weekend next week and doing you know the additional um aside from christmas presents or whatever but like just the um, you know, planning to to bake some family uh, traditional baking or like an extra um, side dish or something like that. That was my great grandmother's recipe and seeing, um, thinking about, you know, how every trip to the grocery store is like $100. And if you're on income assistance and you're already living on um, a budget for your entire life of $300 in addition to um, you know, three to four hundred dollars in addition to what you have for your shelter rate. It's it's insane um, that there's so many barriers to providing um, the basics for people who are experiencing the deepest poverty in this province. What do you think it's the really government should be doing uh, that they're not doing right now for those people, for the people at the bottom of the economic ladder? Um. I was hoping my computer would not (laughs) make funny sounds at you, but it did. Um, 
I mean, I think at this point, there's no argument against moving towards the um, universal basic income. It's just, um, you, if you think about all of the government funding that has to go into um, the charitable sector or um, the paraprofessional sector to support people who are trying to live on $675 a month in a city or $710 a month in a, in, in a province where, um, you know, the average livable wage is $21 an hour. It just, it doesn't make any sense that, um, I, I just think it's, it's a moral issue at this point and an ethical issue that, we need to rethink how we spend the government's money and it should not be in um, supporting the government's infrastructure to support people who are poor. It should be in, in actually reducing poverty. Mm. Can you remind us a little bit about what is universal basic income and how does it differ from social assistance and disability assistance that we have now? Yeah. So I'm not an expert, but the way that I understand it is that the government would set a threshold um, usually um, it would be aimed at being above the poverty line. And um, so let's say for argument's sake that uh, they set that threshold of $40,000 a year, that everybody, that nobody in the province who's an adult um, should be required to live on less than $40,000 a year. Um, and then there's adjustments that get made. So if you work part-time, um, and you don't quite make that $40,000 a year, then maybe you get an additional benefit to sort of top you up. But if you are um, prevented from working somehow, either um, through unemployment or through disability or, um, you know, health or mental health factors, then you would be eligible for a benefit that, were, that would provide you with adequate income to survive and to uh, not, not face the... Uh, the social stigma, not face the mental health effects, and not face the limits on your on your life that you would be from our traditional income assistance program. And not clawing money back if you do a side hustle or get a small amount of honorarium or something during the month. Yeah, so it, it allows you to it allows you to gradually, um, if you do have barriers to working, it allows you to work. Um, because it it just makes up the difference between what you work and um, and the benefit, and you don't have to have um, you know if you're if you're able to if you're able to participate and be a little bit more self sufficient because you know that you're going to make at least forty thousand dollars a year, then it starts to create some um, stability for people, which improves all of their social determinants of health. It improves their ability to maintain housing. Um, it's, I think, um, in every jurisdiction where this is already policy and in the very successful outcomes they saw in the pilot projects in Ontario, there's no defense against not doing it. Especially during the pandemic, one would think, when we're spending literally many hundreds of billions of dollars. We are not protecting the most vulnerable you know, there's there's reports that, you know, the average Canadian spends 168% of their annual income. People are over leveraged. And I think that this pandemic is going to be the tipping point for a complete breakdown of um, 
people's stability in terms of their um, housing and their income. And um, it's something that really concerns me and keeps me up at night. As you go into this uh, sort of week of holidays and looking towards the new year, how is uh, First United and your community sort of coming together uh, in this time to support folks? Yeah, so our tradition at First United has always been not to focus on Christmas, um, (laughs) which is a little ironic for a church, I suppose. Um, Advent is the season that we are in currently until Christmas Day, which is my favorite time of year. In part, it ties into my own story of recovery from drugs and alcohol. Um, I got sober uh, the first week of Advent uh, 20 years ago, and um, I hadn't been to church in eight years. And I walked into an Advent service, and the minister at the church where I was um, was preaching about how we were in this period of hopeful unknowing and that we knew that there was the potential for the possibility of change, but that change hadn't come yet. And I love that because I feel like that defines so well our ministry at First United. As a low barrier service provider, we don't have the big transformational stories or programs that like, you know, turn people's lives around. We are with them um, in the ways that they need us to be. And sometimes that looks like stabilization so they can get into a, a recovery program somewhere else. And um, and sometimes we don't know. And sometimes, um, you know, we just, we just sit with that not knowing. Um, Christmas is not an easy time for many people on the downtown east side. And so um, we really try to uh, – we don't do an explicit, like, blue Christmas – kind of program, but we do try to just dial it down a little bit and be respectful of the fact that it is a really challenging time of year for many people, especially, you know, years into the opioid crisis when we have people who have lost so many of their friends and loved ones. Um, You know, it's a challenging time of year. Um, It's also the time of year where the whole lower mainland turns to the downtown east side and wants to step in with a little bit of a savior complex and, and, you know, provide for the most needy and um, boxing day onwards, those people are sort of persona non grata to the rest of society. And so um, we tend to do our big meals um, in the first week of January to remind people that we're still here and that we still love them and, um, and to spread to spread out the care and the love and the, um, I guess just the the tangible presence of walking alongside people where they are. You're actually making me tear up here, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> this hasn't happened yet on my show. <laughs> uh, There's a first time for everything, I guess. Um, I'm, You're welcome. <laughs> you talked about the new year and this this ongoing presence. I know you have some big plans for the years ahead. At First United, could you give yeah. us a little hint of what those are in our final minute? Yeah. So if you have been into First United, um, or even if you've just driven past it, you know that um, our building is a mid-century modern beauty with a crown slash mountain shaped uh, roof line and was designed for congregational worship um, with a small outreach ministry uh, as part of um, how the building was designed in 1965 when it was built. Um, It no longer suits our purposes and is falling apart. So have had, um, you know, a lot of fun calls in the last couple of years, like, oh, it's raining inside Um, or having a plumber come to fix a toilet and having a a pipe crumble in his hands inside the wall. 
Um, so it, we've really outlived the uh, useful purpose of the building that is currently on the corner of Hastings and Gore. Um, we have had a church, um, First Presbyterian Church and then First United Church has been on that corner since 1892. And um, as the board, uh, you know, developed their new strategic plan um, a couple of years ago, one of the questions that we talked about was um, the importance of discerning uh, is the building important or are the services important? And we decided that they were both important and that we wanted to continue the presence of a church on the on the corner of Hastings and Gore into the future and that we would redevelop our property. And so um, we have submitted a development application that's consistent with the downtown east side community plan. So we don't have to apply for a rezoning. Um, we've gone before urban design panel this month and we go in front of the Heritage Commission um, January 11th, and then to the Vancouver Permitting Board on January 25th. Um, what we have proposed is a new purpose-built facility that has as much flex space as possible to provide, um, you know, an ongoing ministry that responds to the needs of the community in innovative ways. So we'll have a commercial kitchen and a dining room that will seat 150 people as a time, two drop-in spaces, one on the first floor, one on the second floor. Um, there'll be an emergency shower for when people get bear maced um, on the first floor so they don't have to go up to find where the shower program is. Um, there will be first aid or help desk um, our advocacy office will be moving back to uh, the corner of Hastings and Gore, and we will have a beautiful sacred space or chapel on the third floor. There's going to be an outdoor deck for the community on the second floor and um, a computer lab and some classroom space. There will be a dedicated space for day sleeping that will be run as a program so people can sign up to come and have a cot for the day. Um, and we're really excited about that. And, of course, the number one need on the downtown east side is affordable housing. And so we've partnered with Luma Native Housing Society to create 105 units of non-market housing, um, primarily for Indigenous uh, singles and couples. So it'll be um, bachelor suites and one bedrooms. Um, given, given the nature of the adult population that we serve, um, we decided not to provide any family housing in this building. And of course, the need for um, senior for single and couples housing in the downtown east side is huge, and so um, that's really really where we tried to focus our efforts. And so we're hoping that we start demolition uh, sort of early summer. Wow! Thanks for sharing that with us, Carmen. Before we close, is there? I know with all this uncertainty and and everything, is there anything that you're looking forward to in 2021? Um, yes. There is allegedly a time capsule in the cornerstone of the church. And so when we start demolition in the summer, <laughs> I'm really looking forward <laughs> to seeing what um, Reverend Ross put in that time capsule when they built the new church. So um, it's kind of a geeky thing, but uh, it's also encouraging uh, us to think about what we would put in a 2021 time capsule for when we build the cornerstone of the new church. I've never encountered a minister so eager to demolish the walls of their building before and crack it open to see what's inside. So looking forward to hearing what's in there. <laughs> well, I mean, I think if there's one thing um, that the that the wider church has had to grapple with, 
um, through this pandemic is that like church really is not only just in the walls of our buildings, right? Like that we are a community of believers that come together around a faith story and that we share that fellowship and being in community together, um, largely facilitated through the walls of a church, but it can also be through Zoom or out in the forest or calling calling your neighbors and your friends and checking on them to make sure that they're okay and providing, you know, access to food safely for low-income seniors who are having to stay in isolation. There's so much more to being a church than what's in those walls. And so, yeah, I'm ready to tear them down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen, and happy holidays to you. All right. Okay, you too, David. And that was the Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, Executive Director of First United. To support their work, you can find their website at firstunited.ca. And to apply for the BC government's emergency benefit, go to gov.bc.ca slash recovery benefit or phone toll free 1-833-882-0020. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.